0: I hope to my life! And welcome to episode 28 of Say Hello to My Little Friend, also known as the Beretta Cast, the podcast of the Beretta website, covering philosophy, theology, social issues and anything else that takes my fancy. As always, I'm your host, Glenn Peoples. As you may know, I'm midway through a series at the moment called In Search of the Soul, which is a podcast series on philosophy of mind. But before we get back into that, here's something a little bit different that I do every now and then. A few days ago I spoke at our local church, Grace Bible Church, here in Dunedin in the evening service, and we had a bunch of American students visiting that night, so it was good to have a larger and maybe slightly better looking than usual audience, and a few of them are probably listening to this, or at least they said they would be. If you are, hi, and I appreciated the encouraging comments that we received on Sunday night, so thanks for being here again. This is the second time that I've posted a talk that I've given in our church. The previous one was my talk on uh, Jesus' Olivet Discourse and the destruction of Jerusalem that he discussed there. This one is on Psalm 69. I actually began the talk by playing a, a song from a CD called Resurrection by the Australian band Sons of Korah. The song is called Psalm 69, Looking for God, and it's basically Psalm 69, or at least part of it, as a song, which is, of course, what it originally was. Um, I can't play that song on the podcast because it's somebody's copyrighted music. But if you can track it down, then I recommend you do so. I really like the song and the album as a whole. But for now, let's go to church. Before... I get into what I want to talk about mostly with this psalm. There are just a few things of interest about it. As someone with a bit of an academic background, you say, I'm going to deal with these things, and then these things, and then these things. Firstly, I want to talk about what I think is the prophetic interest of the psalm. I think it was Karl Barth who said that the entire book of Psalms is all about Jesus. And I think there's a sense in which this is true as well of Psalm 69. Uh, You'll be familiar in John's Gospel when Jesus sort of barges into the temple and kicks out all the money changers and turns over the tables and the buyers and sellers. And John connects that to Psalm 69 where it says, zeal for your house has consumed me. And so he seems to think that Jesus is being spoken about in this Psalm here in some way, or it reflects the life of Jesus in some way. And that's true. I think if you read from start to finish, Jesus is the perfect example of the kind of man being described here who loves God's house, who trusts his heavenly Father. But in spite of all this, he was hated unjustly, uh, alienated from his, even his own family, even his mother's sons, you know, Mary's other children, her sons. Interesting one when you have discussions with Catholics about this psalm, but it's not an issue I intend to go into today. But the main thing I'm going to be talking about today is actually the kind of psalm that this is. It's not the kind of thing that we tend to sing in church. On baptisms, you're not going to get someone requesting Psalm 69 as, <laughs> as the song to sing, uh, if, if the church in question even has a song based on Psalm 69. It's a psalm of lament. It's not a very happy song. From start to finish, it's, it's pretty grim. You might think that, that makes it an exceptional worship song, but it's not. If you read the book of Psalms, you'll find out that most psalms Well, not most psalms, but the largest category of psalm is psalm of lament. There are lots of different kinds of psalms. There are psalms of praise. There are what's called psalms of ascent, that is psalms that would be sung on the way to Jerusalem. There were royal psalms. And then there were psalms of lament, sad ones. And that's the single largest category of all the psalms. Over a third of them are psalms of lament. Think of, I don't know, maybe you've been to church twice today, maybe. If not, think of all the times you've been to church in the last month. Would you say about a third of the songs that you sing are laments? I don't think so. I don't think that our worship... I mean, I'm not saying we need to exactly map our worship onto the practice of the book of Psalms. And so if exactly one third of these are uh, prayers of lament, then exactly one third of our songs should be. But I think there should be at least some correlation. If this is so important that over a third of them are written this way, I think our worship should in some way reflect that. and, And I don't think it does. So I think that this is actually a part of our worship that we tend to neglect. As a church, maybe as individuals as well. I guess that depends on the church and the individual. But if you look at Psalm 69 from start to finish, there is actually no happy ending in the psalm. Not at any point. You'd like to think, well, this is a sad one, sure. But at the end, things turn out okay. And God has helped him in the end and he can say, right now it's over. But that doesn't happen. There is no happy ending in this psalm. There's a lot of reference to God's deliverance, but it always comes in the form of a request and a hope for the future. It's always God will. I'll pick out an example. I pray to you, O Lord, in the time of your favor, in your great love, O Lord, answer me. So when you have time, when it seems right to you, help me. You haven't done it yet, but I I hope that you will at some point. The rest of it is things like I'm in pain and distress, Uh, He says, the Lord hears the needy, but he hasn't done so by the time this psalm is finished. All his efforts so far have had no result. He has got to the end of the day. He's done as much asking as he can because he says here, I'm worn out calling for help. He's looked for God as hard as you can expect anyone to look for God. And he says at the end, my eyes fail. I failed. I failed. I wanted to find God here to help me, and he wasn't there. No matter what I did, and no matter how long I waited, I was not helped. We don't tend to pray that way. We don't tend to sing that way. Now I want to say that that's actually encouraging. This psalm can be encouraging for us, which sounds a bit paradoxical at first. Here's why. When we endure this kind of thing, when we experience what you might call spiritual depression, or just, let's just call it depression in general, because that's what it sounds like to me. Whether it's incidental, you know, the kind of depression that we all get from time to time, just because of the way life treats us, the way we think God treats us, whether it's, whether it's more persistent and ongoing than that, maybe you even have a condition. Whatever the case may be, depression affects the way that we look at God. Certainly affects the way he looks at God. It can make us ask all kinds of questions like, am I I really God's? Am I, I mean, this is this is not the kind of language that the psalmist would have used, but am I really saved? Does God really accept me? If he's not responding to me, if he can't hear me despite my best efforts? Is and this this happens. One of the main reasons that it happens is because of this kind of experience. People say, is, is God really good? Is, he, is, is God real? Have I been wrong all this time? It happens. They end up writing New York Times bestsellers about it. Why I lost my faith. You'll find invariably, is a, a guy called Christopher Hitchens who did this. I don't know if he personally lost faith, but he knows lots of people who did. And the question they all found themselves asking is, is God good? His book was called God is Not Good. Because he wanted to sell lots of copies. But that's the question they found themselves asking. Is God really good? Oh, wait a minute. I said this was going to be encouraging. Not very encouraging so far, but it actually could be. Because I want you to conjure up in your mind, maybe you know a real person like this, maybe you don't, but if you don't, conjure up in your mind the ideal Christian or the Christian in your life, if there is one, who you look up to as a Christian more than anyone else and who you would mentor yourself on. Maybe you do mentor yourselves on them. They pray with regularity. When they pray in public, you're almost jealous of the things they say because they have so much meaningful stuff to say to God, and you find it really encouraging. They know the Scriptures extremely well. They're very, very committed people. They're clearly transformed by the Holy Spirit. They impact the world for Christ and the way that they live. And then this person draws you aside one day and says, look, well, maybe they don't draw you. So maybe you're just in discussion with them one day and they happen to say, look, you know, things are great right now. Um, my relationship with God is really good. I feel close to him. But boy, I've got to tell you, six months ago, it was horrible. I, um, I found it really hard to pray. It was, all these things were going on in my life. I had a friend who passed away from a horrible disease. Um, a whole bunch of things in my relationships weren't, weren't going right and I really couldn't, I tried to pray to God about it, but I really couldn't connect. It was difficult. I didn't feel like God was there. I would find that encouraging. You know why? Because those are the kinds of things I struggle with. And yet here's this person who I look up to, this model Christian who experiences exactly the same things. Well, King David. Every king after him who was bad was condemned. Every king after him who was good was praised because he had a heart after God like David's. And yet here's David saying, God, I can't see you in my life right now. I find that encouraging. If a spiritual giant who knew God probably better than I can ever hope to in this life is able to get to a point where he can say this, then I don't feel so bad that I can do it too. It's not the end. Because it certainly wasn't the end for David. You look at the very next psalm. And you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Oh no, sorry, that's 71. 70 is pretty sad too, but 71 fix up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but he does get there. That's the point. If a spiritual giant can, can go through the troughs like that, but you know that later on he goes through the peaks, then I, I, don't, I, I can still see. Look, I can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, but I can be sure that it's there because he went through it. You want another example? I can think of an obvious one. Jesus hung on the cross, doing the very thing that God sent him into this world to do, and yet even he found himself actually quoting the psalmist, saying what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You've forsaken me. You're not with me right now. And yet I'm not going to say that Jesus has spiritual issues. If spiritual giants like King David and if even the Son of God himself are capable of experiencing the distance of God like this, then that encourages me that when I feel the distance of God in my life, I know that it's not the end. There is potential here in the church, both in the church corporately and in the lives of individuals who are part of the church, for incredible harm to be done when we do not respond appropriately to those who tell us that they are experiencing these things in their lives. I can remember a conversation that I had years ago. I would have been about 18, and I was hanging out with a bunch of Christians. We were actually on a beach mission. Somewhere we were there as part of an evangelism campaign, and we would, it was the evening, and the, and the work had been done for the day, we were sort of hanging around drinking coffee and talking about how the day had gone, and some of them were sharing, you know, they were, I guess the kind of people that I would characterize as, as Pentecostal, to, and that's not to say it's a bad thing, that's just because they tend to talk in a certain way about their relationship with God, and they were talking about how they can just feel the presence of God, and how it's so wonderful when, when the Holy Spirit comes and moves upon you, and, and and you can just worship in a certain way and feel God's closeness with you. And I made the comment that, well, I actually found that quite difficult to feel. I found it difficult to experience that. And sometimes I really didn't feel like God was very present, and I had to really work at it. Now, there are a number of very good answers that could have been given to me. But you know the one that was given to me? Well, Glenn, you've probably got a problem with sin in your life. <laughs> you think? You <laughs> think? That didn't come as a surprise. What came to me as a surprise was that that was given as the solution. Like, oh, all I have to do is get rid of my sin and then I'll be fine. We've all got sin in our lives. You you do not do anyone any favours by saying, look, the reason that your spiritual walk isn't as good as mine is because you're more sinful than I am. You can do incredible damage to a person. How many people do you think have left churches or started attending and never come back because they've been given the message that they are more sinful than the people inside and that's why those people inside are closer to God. It isn't worth it. It's not true either. It's also very dishonest when we don't lament in this way, when we don't let people know that this is the kind of thing that happens in our lives. You know why? Because we become like used... There are no car salesmen here, are there? (laughs) Just thought I'd check before I say this. We've become like used car salesmen. We say, yeah, this car will give you no trouble whatsoever. She'll be right for the next 500,000 k's. Weren't so much as rattle. And, they, and then you sell the car and they get in the thing and it smokes all the way down the road. And it, it's like that. The Christian faith, is, the Christian life is not like the car that never breaks down. You will find very often that you will find yourself feeling like this. You know, God's not there as I would hope would like him to be, I, I feel like I'm going through these things that I can't handle. I really wish God were closer right now. If we project the image that the Christian faith is perfect or that you will never experience those times, then people will see that we are lying to them. And they'll see that we're being completely unrealistic and they will treat us like they treat a used car salesman. You can't trust them. They don't believe the, the illusion that they're, that they're spinning themselves. Look at their lives. You can see it's not real it's not real. If we say that that's what the Christian faith is, then the Christian faith isn't real because that's not what it is. So we do great disservice to, to ourselves, to, to the church, to God when we fail to tell people that this is actually a very big part of Christian life. I've been talking a lot about problems. What about answers? Are there any solutions? Well, yeah, there are. They're not fix all obvious, immediate cures that will make your problems go away. The psalmist here never suggests that his difficulties are about to disappear completely or that he expects that they will. But there are some solutions. There are some answers. There is hope here. It's not part of what we read today, but if you want to just scoot ahead a bit to verses 22 through to 28, let's have a look at what the psalmist wrote. He's talking about those who are actually part of the cause of his suffering, those who persecute him as as a faithful follower of God. He says of them, may they be blotted out, sorry, 22, may the table set before them become a snare, may it become retribution and a trap, may their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Pour out your wrath on them, let your fierce anger overtake them. May their place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in their tents, for they persecute those you wound. And talk about the pain of those you hurt. Charge them with crime upon crime. Do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. Wow, that's pretty severe. And it's part of the solution. No one's said solutions were always pretty. God will put things right. David is a big picture person. He knows that these things might not take place while he is alive. But they will happen. Long term, they will happen. Look at verses 34 to 35. That was sort of one of the negative things that will happen. Now, one of the positive things that will happen, verses 34 to 35 say... Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and all that move in them. For God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah. Then people will settle there and possess it. Well, if it hasn't happened yet, how does, how does the Psalm writer know that a thing like that's going to happen? How could he possibly say, in spite of all these terrible things that have happened, I know what's going to happen in the future? How does he know that? Well, as you know, Zion is another name in Hebrew for Jerusalem. And he's talking here about the fact that he can say these things because God has promised them. So even if he can't see them happening now, he can declare that they will happen. So the second solution then, firstly, God's going to put things right in ways that aren't always pleasant. Secondly, God has made promises. What promises has God made to you? Well, ultimately, what promises has God made to Christ? As Ultimately, all the promises of Scripture are about Christ. Even the promises made to Abraham when he says, through your seed, I will bless many nations. He we was talking about Jesus. So that's the second thing. God has made promises to you in Christ that supersede, that transcend the circumstances that you are going through right now, no matter what they are. Third, the third solution is don't keep quiet about it. You might see this as perhaps Less spiritual, I don't think it is. It's a bit of a practical, hands-on solution. The psalmist didn't keep quiet about it, or he wouldn't be having this talk today. He wrote Psalm 69. He wrote a song about it. Well, you don't have to write a song about it, but don't keep quiet about it if you find that these are the things that you are experiencing in your life. Seek help from various places. It's a mistake to think that a problem like this is a spiritual one in a spiritual box over here, Unlike other things, which are practical problems and practical worldly boxes over here, there's no distinction. Whether it's something to do with prayer, something to do with relationships in the church or just social relationships in general, whether it's, I don't know, medical, psychological problem, who knows? All problems are problems that need God's help. Whether you consider them spiritual or not, there's no distinction with God. He created all things. Every part of your life is something that God can work in. You might think, oh, look, I'm having, a, having this, this problem in a relationship with prayer. Some helpful soul might tell you, well, maybe you've got an issue with demons, or maybe there's a curse, or maybe there's something spiritual going on. Oh, maybe you're not getting enough sleep. Maybe you need to put right a relationship with someone, because that's really fouling up your life right now. It's a very spiritual issue. In fact, the Bible says you don't have any business coming before God in corporate worship while you haven't forgiven someone, while you've still got this dispute going on in your private life. So it could be all sorts of things that aren't strictly spiritual issues. But get help for whatever it is. Lastly, verses 34 to 36 again. So I'll read them again, even though I've already read them. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and all that move in them. For God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah. Then people will settle there and possess it. The children of his servants will inherit it. And those who love his name will... Will dwell there. It actually ends with an instruction to worship. Why should we do all these things? Well, what, what, what's he telling you these things for? He's telling you so that all heaven and earth will praise him, the seas and all that move in them. Worship is the last word here. Not celebration that your problem's already been solved, no, but worship nonetheless. Don't refrain from worship because your relationship with the one that you are worshipping isn't as good as it could be, or you are suffering because of it. It's like saying, well, I'm I'm seeing a doctor for this disease. It's starting to get a bit worse. Do you think maybe I should stop seeing the doctor? No. (laughs) You should go back to the doctor and say, look, things are getting worse. I need more help than I did before. But people do. They say, right now, I'm angry with God. So I really don't want to go and worship him just now. I'll take time out from this relationship. Bad move. Bad move. That's a relationship maybe may be the only thing keeping you afloat. Worship is a way of seeking closeness with God in spite of the chaos around us. I know for myself, maybe this is true for you, but my own prayer and worship grew far more when I had the most doubt and difficulty. That's the time where I actually found myself growing more because I had more reason to. I mean, I always had that reason. I just didn't realize it until... I actually started experiencing the difficulties that became the impetus for a much closer relationship with God than before. It's like, yeah, like I said earlier, it's like feeling sicker and taking time out from a doctor. You just don't do it. It can be fatal. It's not safe. It's not a reason to stop. It's a reason to do it all the more. So that's the last word of the psalm. Worship. Press in closer. And really, I think... In practical terms, that's the first step. And it was the first step for the psalm. I mean, it is, after all, not just his personal diary of complaints. This is Israel's worship. This is their hymnal. They come before God and worship him by telling them what their problems are and how they are suffering and how bad things are. And then they close with with praise because they know that really in God, that's where the answer lies, one way or the other. I understand, Mark, that... We're going to move into a time of, is it discussion or question and answers? Or? Say hello to my little friend.